0: Our reading this morning is from Romans chapter 15 verses 1 to 13. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and, moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written... Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up. One who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, please.
1: Thanks, Anna. It would be great if you could have the passage there in front of you. Uh, this week really is a continuation um, from what we heard last week in chapter 14. Uh, chapters 14 through to 15, 13, uh, in, that, in those verses, the Apostle Paul is really kind of addressing one issue, which is why I've got uh, chapter 14 on the back. It's not a misprint, not a leftover from last week. It's just there for your reference as well. Uh, in chapter 14, verse 1, he begins uh, with the command, except the one whose face is weak. And he ends with a similar one in... Uh, chapter uh, in verse 7 of chapter 15 accept one another before he closes with a prayer and one of the great theological truths that you would have noticed that kind of underlies his whole argument is God's big plan for the world his great global gospel plan you see God's purposes are, are much bigger than you or me they're cosmic They're global. His plans are for redeemed humanity and a redeemed creation. Uh, This plan was accomplished and fulfilled in Jesus. One global family liberated by the blood of Christ, born of God's mercy and grace and living under his lordship. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might... Glorify God for his mercy. Jews and Gentiles in one family together glorifying God. Verse 12, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. And uh, God's uh, great global gospel plan, which is uh, promised here as we saw through uh, the Psalms, the law and the prophets, is fulfilled in Christ. Christ. And it has implications for the life of the local church. Verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. Why? So that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see these implications here for our community, for the local church? It's unity, right? Glorifying God with one voice. God's great global gospel plan means each church community should be a united community. Glorifying God, a community of grace together. And one of the most thrilling and attractive implications of the cross is the formation of this kind of community. You see, God has designed us to be in community together. It's one of his great gifts. And one of the most destructive consequences of sin is the breaking down of this community. It happened in the garden when the man turned on the woman and they both together turned away from God. And ever since then, our human communities have been fraught and sinful. One of the great challenges to unity in our kind of fraught and sinful state is how we deal with disagreement and difference. It's a challenge for communities, it's a challenge for God's communities and it's a challenge for us. Uh, The gospel gives us uh, a, a fantastic vision for real unity in community. It's a community based on mercy and grace and grace based community doesn't pretend away difference, it doesn't deny them, it doesn't deny disagreement it acknowledges them and handles them in a way that promotes unity but it doesn't always kind of play out like that Uh, sometimes we an alternative to this kind of community is kind of like surface community that's where we pretend about our differences right Uh, we don't uh, talk about them we avoid them and we ignore them when they turn into conflicts and instead of dealing with these conflicts or these disagreements, we kind of nurse resentment toward each other. We don't talk about it. Sometimes it goes on for years, for decades. And we withdraw from each other, all, of course, in the name of avoiding disunity and division. That's one alternative to grace community is service community. Another is legalistic community. That's when, where there's kind of a set of rules that we have beyond the gospel are rules for this community and you need to follow them to be accepted. Our legalistic community squeezes people into the same values and behaviour, the same theological positions and political views. Our legalistic communities, they demand conformity and if you don't conform, well, you're not welcome or accepted. And neither of these, surface community or legalistic community, is the kind of community that God calls us to. It's not gospel unity, it's not real community. Grace is the only way. Or this kind of authentic gospel unity, this real community was under severe pressure in Rome and we heard some of that last week. And this issue concerned Paul greatly. Because deep in the heart of God's purposes is the restoration of real community. And so for Paul, bringing healing and unity to the church in Rome, or any church, it's not like a side hustle. It's not the icing on the cake. It's the cake. It's a fundamental implication of the gospel itself. And that's why he's so passionate here. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Every effort, he says in Ephesians 4, verse 3. This is the pressing issue uh, that Paul's confronting in uh, chapter 14 and 15. And we began looking at it last week. The situation in the Roman church is tense. Uh, Gentile Christians, they've rightly understood the gospel. They know they're they're free to eat meat even if it's been prepared in the context of pagan rituals and worship. And they know they're not bound by the old covenant as law anymore. They've grasped the freedom that's ours in the gospel and that's a good thing, that's a right thing. That's not the problem. The problem is they're insisting that their Jewish brothers and sisters do exactly as they do. They're insisting that they uh, ditch the Sabbath. They're insisting that they eat meat, even though their consciences haven't caught up yet, even though that for eating them, uh, eating this uh, meat would be a sin It would cause them to stumble and to fall. And you see what the Gentile Christians have done. It's so ironic. They're saying, freedom in Christ but you have to think and act like me. Freedom in Christ, but here's a new form of legalism that you guys have to conform to. Paul sees what's happening and he's outraged. For the sake of food and drink, you're violating the consciences of your Jewish brothers and sisters. You're causing them to stumble and fall. These people for whom Christ died. Remember what he calls these matters. They're not central, they're not decisive. Verse 1 of chapter 14, they're disputable. And you're destroying the work of God for these? Are you serious? Well chapter 15 is the end point of his argument and he he says this is how you should act. This is what unity in Gracefield community looks like. This is who you're meant to be. Verse 1. First Paul says, In Gracefield community the strong bear with the weak. That's how they act. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. Sometimes he says there are more important things than being right. It's hard to believe, isn't it? We like being right. I like being right. Indeed, sometimes in the name of being right, we behave like it's okay to do all kinds of damage to others. But as it turns out, sometimes being right isn't so important. Now to be clear, Paul is clear on who is right here. He identifies with the strong, we who are strong. He's 100% on board with the theology of the strong. That's not the issue. It's just that on some issues, community is more important than being correct and asserting your correctness. Some issues are not worth causing division and damage over. Now, it's important not to mishear what he's saying. It's important to really hear what he is saying and what he's not saying. On the one hand, when when what at stake is the gospel or behaviour that necessarily flows from the gospel, right theology and conduct, that's worth insisting on and even if it causes division and conflict. Let's take a couple of examples an example from Paul's letter to the Galatians. He says in chapter 1, verses 8 and nine, if anybody preaches a different gospel, let them be eternally condemned, cut off. Literally, he's saying, let them go to hell under God's curse. Paul is ferocious when the gospel is at stake and it was in the church in Galatia. Another church, uh, sorry, another example from 1 Corinthians. When someone's sin is grievous and and they are thoroughly and and proudly unrepentant, Paul is also clear. The sexually immoral, the greedy, the slanderous, he says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says in chapter 5, don't associate with them. Of course, in the hope that they will uh, turn away from what they're doing Uh, and repents. Paul's not a relativist. He won't tolerate anything and everything. On the other hand, though, it's just not the case that in every disagreement and difference, the gospel or the behaviour that flows from it necessarily is always at stake. And this issue here that he's talking to, it's not worth breaking community over. We must be very, very, very careful about what issues we break unity and threaten community over. What do you say in in Ephesians 4? Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Every effort. And there will be some issues that fall into that category, but this is not one of them, it's disputable. And so that means those who are strong, those who've rightly understood their freedom in Christ, they should bear with the failings of the weak. The image here is like carrying a load, bearing with the failings of the weak. And so Paul says, "'To the strong, for the sake of unity,' Use your strength to carry, to help the weak. He's not saying pretend you are wrong. He's not saying pretend you haven't understood the freedom you have in the gospel. No, he says use your strength. Use your strength. Use your knowledge in the service of those whose consciences aren't as developed or or as trained as yours. Use it for their good, verse 2. Build them up. And that means not passing judgment on their weaker brothers and sisters. Don't pass judgment. Don't think you're better, whatever. It also means not insisting that they eat meat or ditch the Sabbath. Instead it means not doing anything at all that will cause them to stumble and fall. That's what it means to be strong. Sometimes we say to strong people, don't be strong. Pretend you're not strong. Hide your strengths. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying wealthy people don't be wealthy or influential people don't be influential or smart people don't be smart. He's not saying, he's not saying hide or, or, or deny your strengths. He's saying use it. Not in a prideful or self-serving way. Use your strengths in the service of others. Philippians 2, do, no, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interests of others. It's the same message, right? Use your strength to serve. Well here, Paul is clear on who the strong and the weak are. But it won't always be easy to work that out in our situations, will it? We won't always have an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ tell us. And when I'm in disagreements about the Christian life, I'm usually the one that's right, right? I'm the strong one. We always think that we're the strong one. But the point here of this passage isn't to work out who the strong or who the weak Ah, The point is serve. Build up your neighbour. And so the question we have to ask is how might I use my knowledge, my strength to serve and please others? How do I love and build up the other person not show them how right I am? So often that's not the way we come to disagreements, is it? But that's what we're called to to build up, to serve, to act for the other's good. Not to win, not to judge or to crush the other person but to love. So if you think you're right, that's what you've got to do. If you're further along in your faith, that's a strength. If you have wisdom, that's the strength. You use it to serve those who might be getting snagged on issues that you know aren't central. You use it to serve those who are struggling in sin. Be gentle. Build them up. Real strength, real maturity isn't meant to puff us up. It's not meant to be used to belittle or patronise. Real strength is held in humility and service. In Gracefield community, the strong bear with the weak. And verse 7, in Gracefield community, we all accept one another. Uh, this is the Apostle's last command in this section and it's really the climax of everything he's been talking about. Brothers and sisters in Rome, whoever you are, Jew or Gentile, whatever your background, whatever your uh, specific beliefs about certain things in your practices, whatever you eat or don't eat, accept one another. Accept one another. It can be translated as well, welcome one another. Not just smiling thinly or kind of exchanging pleasantries, sort of surface community. Genuinely accept and welcome. Allow the other person in, into your presence, into your life, into your concern, in your care and into your love. Be a community of grace that makes visible what God has already done in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be a spirit-filled community that fights for the unity and love for which Jesus shed his precious blood. Don't you want to be that community? Don't you want to fight for that community? Well, that means not having any criteria beyond the gospel for how we welcome and include and build others up that aren't extra boxes that people have to tick or, or hurdles that they need to jump over to be accepted This sort of community doesn't just welcome certain kinds of people with the right backgrounds or occupations or statuses or social values. It doesn't kind of form impenetrable relational cliques. No, in a community of grace, we recognise all the differences there might be here among us. All the ways I might be right and you might be right. And the whole point is we use our differences for each other. Use our strength not to puff ourselves up or run over others but for the good purpose of building others. We devote ourselves to God's construction project here and in each one of us. That's grace-based community. we'll notice how the Apostle Paul, how he kind of grounds both these instructions. We use our strength not to please ourselves, but to please and build others up. Why? Verse 3, because Christ did not please himself. We ought to accept one another, verse 7. Why? Because Christ, the one who became a servant, accepted you. Jesus is our servant and our Lord. And as a humble servant, he's our great example. Verse 5, have the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. Christ was in very nature God, yet he took on the nature of a servant. Imitate him. Imitate the one who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Imitate him. In the garden of Gethsemane, sweat falling like drops of blood to the ground, Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, Father, but yours be done. His aim wasn't to please himself. His aim was to serve. His aim was to give his life as a ransom for many. Have that same attitude of service. By the Holy Spirit we're being conformed to the image of that servant, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Conformed to carry each other, accept each other as he has carried and accepted us. Because at the cross that's exactly what he did. Thereby his strength he bore all our weakness. He used his strength to carry us. Thereby his forsakenness we were accepted by God. And because of his shed blood, we can be those who carry each other, those who build each other, those who accept each other as we strive for gospel unity together. And so we return to the beginning, God's great global gospel plan. At the heart... Of God's plan is restoration of real community. So Paul's earnest desire, his gospel passion is that believers in Rome live in unity with one another. But that unity, it's not the end game in a sense. It's not an end in itself. Look at verse six. It's so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. And our unity now anticipates that great day pictured in Revelation 7 when uh, uh, people from every tongue, tribe and nation will gather before the throne of God singing his praises in glory, united, one voice. And there and here our unity has a reason and a purpose and a goal, the glory of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that glory, that's diminished when God's people sing out of tune, when there are discordant notes, when there are conflicts and clashes, when there's division and disunity. The picture here of God's people is of a choir. It's so beautiful and it's so powerful because in a choir, differences isn't, aren't something that you fight about or judge each other over. It's not something we just even tolerate. It's something that's needed. Difference is something that we need and, and celebrate. You need all the, the basses, the, the tenors, the sopranos, the altos. You need all the different people, all the different voices. Not doing their own thing, of course, but singing the same song in harmony, in unison. Using their strength to serve, accepting, celebrating, completing each other. And it's then that those differences uh, they make the choir so beautiful. Well, how about us? What will be the challenges to unity amongst us? They probably won't be food and drink. Maybe what coffee you prefer. Should we change it on Sundays? Let's not divide over that. Uh, Will it be Sabbath days? Probably not. What might they be? Different ideas on the role of gender in ministry. That's a big one, isn't it? Different ideas on how we should act on issues of social justice. Different ideas on how we should respond to the conflicts in the wider Anglican church and the related theological issues. Here at 10am, as we move forward in our life together, next next year we're planning to uh, have a discussion on what the future might look like who we will be as we move forward together. That could be a real challenge to unity here as we all have different versions potentially of the good and what we believe God calls us to. That could be a challenge. And the fault lines of the culture around us, wealth, status, power, politics, they always seem to find their way inside the church as well, don't they? A girl in one of my daughter's classes said she could uh, never be friends with a white, liberal, voting, middle-aged Christian male. We do live in the inner north. Do you reckon some version of that could happen in church? Whatever issues we face, some will clearly be disputable. Others will clearly be central to the gospel. And others, well, they might be a lot harder to figure out. The good news is, I'm not proposing we work them all out this morning. But as we approach each issue, we have a wonderful opportunity. We have a wonderful opportunity to come together as one united grace-filled community across all our differences significant or otherwise we have the wonderful opportunity to see that even our significant differences are relativized by the blood of Christ and we have the wonderful opportunity to use our strength to serve to build to accept to welcome one another as Christ has done for us so that with one voice we might glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the screen, uh, two prayers that the Apostle Paul uh, prayed or wanted to pray for the Roman Church and we're going to pray them together. I'll just take have a moment to, to look at this one and maybe uh, Georgina, the next one as well. And just taken from the passage. Okay, let's pray that first one together. Father God, give us endurance and encouragement. Give us the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, we may glorify you. God of hope, fill us with all joy and peace so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.